grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, or if you want to read on the screen behind me, uh, that will work as well, or your tablet, or whatever else you got. Uh, we're glad you're here, glad you can open the scriptures with us this morning. As you turn there, uh, just so you know, all those seats that had the invite cards, that's all we have left. So use them. Uh, we would love for you to invite your friends, invite your family, uh, text somebody. You don't have to use that invite card, but we're going to have a great time next week. I'm really excited about it, just to be able to celebrate the fall together and uh, enjoy each other as God's people, our family together. So you can invite folks to be a part of that as well. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, only verses 1 through 9. I heard last week while I was out of town, we broke some records. It, it broke, we broke the record. Uh, my man, Asunji, read 58 verses. Now Mike just calls it the 58. It's, it's legendary now, the 58. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to read nine verses, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9, to hear the reading of God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the soul of friendship. The soul of friendship. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word Thank you, Lord, that you have befriended us. Thank you, Lord, that you have sought us out, you've pursued us, you've given yourself away to us. And so today, as we uh, sit under your word and listen to your spirit speak to us in your word, God, we pray you would help us to receive your love, receive the words that you have for us. May you transform us more and more into Christ's image, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, they nicknamed him Unsinkable Don. In 1960, Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh and a Swiss oceanographer decided that they were going to be the first people to ever reach the lowest point, the deepest point of the ocean. You may have heard of it before. It's called the Challenger Deep, and it's in the western part of the Pacific Ocean, and it is extremely deep. In fact, you go to the bottom, the bottom is they, they anticipate the lowest they can find is seven miles below the surface. 
To give you some perspective on how deep that really is, you could take Mount Everest and pick up Mount Everest, place it in Challenger Deep, and Mount Everest would still be one mile below the water. That's deep. And they decide in 1960 that they're going to go down to the bottom of Challenger Deep, and, and they had this bubble-looking thing. I don't, know, I, I, I don't even know what you call it, but I guess it's a submarine, but it, it didn't look very safe. It did not look safe. It was not the technology that we have today. And so they go to the bottom of Challenger Deep, and uh, when they you know, make their descent, just imagine the, the amount of pressure that you get at that level. They, they estimated somewhere around 50 jumbo jets that are sitting on top of you is what that would feel like. There's, there's so much pressure from the water, and yet they went further. And they went further, and they go down. In fact, when they got to 30,000 feet, the story goes that some of the outer windows that were made out of plexiglass started to crack. And if you can imagine, you're that far down, you're, you're starting to panic, but they didn't panic. They just went further, farther down and down until they got to the bottom. It took them, get this, four hours and 47 minutes to get to the bottom. And then when they get to the bottom, they only have 20 minutes to spend at the bottom of the ocean, and that for 20 minutes they sit there and they observe. They see these sea creatures, and they're writing down in their little book, and they're, they're making you know, audio recordings of, of what they see and what they're feeling and what they're experiencing, and for 20 minutes they get to see what no one else had ever seen. And then they make their ascent back up to the top, and for the next 50 years, 50 years, no one else would return. Nowadays, you can actually, uh, there, there's about a handful of people, 20-something people who've now made the same plunge, but for 50 years, no one else would go. In other words, so many of us know about the bottom of the ocean. We've heard about it. We can imagine it. We, we can even maybe see pictures of it now, but very few of us have ever been there. Very few of us have personally experienced the bottom of Challenger Deep. And I want to propose to you this morning that real friendship can feel a lot like the bottom of the ocean. Real friendship is that thing in life that many of us have heard about. Maybe you think you've seen pictures on Instagram about it. Maybe, maybe you've, you've heard stories about it or, or whatever it is in your life. But very few of us have actually experienced for ourselves real deep friendship. For the most part, many of us have stayed at the surface and never really reached to the very bottom. There's only been a handful. In fact, the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General this year gave a frightening report. You, you may have heard of it on the news, but he, he gave this report on the state of America and what he described as we are in a loneliness epidemic. And he said, as they were doing their research to find out just how bad it's been, he said, it goes back further than the pandemic, but the pandemic really put it into hyperspeed. And now we are in a terrible position as a nation where he said more than half of America reports, this is based on their study, having a serious level of loneliness. And he said that kind of loneliness doesn't just affect you emotionally or, or relationally, it affects you physically. He went on to describe that that, that kind of loneliness is, is equivalent to someone smoking 15 cigarettes a day or drinking six beers a day. Could you imagine? That, that is what it does to your body, but not even speaking of what it does to your heart, to your mind, to your life. 
And so he's, he's describing this, and people hear this report, and people start to speak back and say, well, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's actually other countries, Britain and some other nations, who years ago, even before the pandemic, get this, they assigned someone to a job that they call the Minister of Loneliness. Someone in their government's full-time job is to figure out how to make us friends. That's how bad the epidemic of loneliness is. Like, think about that for a moment, that they, they are recognizing this is not just an American problem, that this is a global problem in Britain and Japan and other places. They're saying that we need someone who can figure out how do we connect again? How, how do we build relationships again? Because they realize, like all of us, it's something we've heard about, it's something we know about, and maybe we've even experienced it for a moment. But many of us hear that and we say, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. Right? Loneliness, or, or really friendship, is something that we, we long for, but we don't know what it looks like. And so that's what I want to look at today, just in this next few moments. Uh, so we're continuing this series through 1 Samuel, and we've been walking through 1 Samuel, and we're now at the point where we're seeing the rise of David. And so before that, we're looking at the fall of Saul. Saul became king. He has now come down to this place where he is losing his kingdom, and David is rising into his position of, of being the new king, but it's going to take a while. He's in a season of transition, and some scholars estimate it's somewhere around 15 to 20 years of transition. We don't know exactly how long because the dates aren't really given, but when you kind of piece together some of the details, it's over a decade that David has to wait. David is waiting as God is forming him into the man that God has called him to be. Right? In other words, David is going to be called to do some things that he is not yet ready to do, and so God is forming his king. And one of the things, one of the ways that God is going to form this man is through friendship. In fact, it's going to be primarily through his friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan and David have this iconic friendship. In fact, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you've probably heard of their friendship because it is one of the most famous friendships in all the Bible. And really, it has a key role in this whole book and in the life of David because without Jonathan, David would have never become who he was. Without the friendship and, and the pursuit of Jonathan towards David, David would have never been the king he was. And so I want to look this morning for just a few moments at what their friendship looked like and what it can teach us about friendship. And so that's what I want to ask this morning. What does friendship, true friendship, really look like? And so let's look at that first, the true friendship. Number one, if you're taking notes, the first point is true friendship, true friendship. Look at verse one as the story begins. It goes like this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now pause there for a moment. Last week we looked at David and Goliath, right? This epic story of, of David conquering this, this incredible enemy that was coming up against Israel, and at the end of the story, when David has defeated Goliath, David takes the head of Goliath, and he walks over to Saul the king, and he has to explain himself to Saul. And so when we see in verse 1 right here where it says right after he's talking to Saul, it's in the same moment. So picture David at this moment. David is holding the head of Goliath, and Jonathan sees him, and Jonathan says, that's the guy I want to be friends with right there. 
That's the guy I want to be friends with. The, the guy who just killed the giant and he's holding his head in his hand. I mean, it's a pretty gruesome moment right here. But I want to be his friend. And these, these are unlikely friends. Jonathan is Saul's son. So he's the prince. He's, he's the heir to the kingdom. And so David is the one who's now been promised by Samuel, you're going to take the kingdom from Saul. So think about that for a moment. Jonathan and David are friends that would maybe be enemies in any other story, right? They would be the kind of people that would fight against each other. Jonathan would try to get rid of David because he wouldn't want him to take his kingdom, but instead they become friends. Another reason they're unlikely friends is their age is drastically different. Most people, when they read the Bible, they think of Jonathan and David as maybe peers in their age, but actually that's not how the story goes. When you kind of piece together the details of the story, you find out that David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. And by the 10th year of Saul's reign, Jonathan had already been in the army for seven years. And so Numbers tells us that you have to be at least 20 to serve in the army of Israel, which means Jonathan was at least 27 when David was born. He's old enough to be David's dad, and they're friends. They're the closest of friends. In fact, the text says, the text says this. It says their souls were knit together. Now, some liberal scholars you'll read in commentaries take that, uh, that language, and they say, well, this describes David and Jonathan having a homosexual relationship. But let me tell you right now, there is no textual evidence for that at all. There is no evidence for that. In fact, what, what's in the text is this. There's this description of a close relationship that, that makes us almost uncomfortable it's so close. In fact, I think those accusations are, are more of a picture of us in our culture today where we, we don't really have a category for that kind of a close relationship that's not sexual. We don't have a, an understanding of a relationship that can be so close together that your souls are knit together like a cord, and yet you've never had a sexual relationship. Think about that for a moment. We may not have a category for that, but God does. God does. And how does that happen? Look, look at what it says in verse 3. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Literally, Jonathan cuts a covenant. He cuts a covenant. He's saying, I'm going to bind myself to you in blood as a sign of my commitment to you. So here it is. True friendship, it endures on commitment. It endures on commitment. One of the greatest pictures of a covenant that we see in the Bible is between God and Abraham. And it's this beautiful picture in Genesis 15. You may have read it before or heard the story, but God comes to Abraham and he makes this outrageous promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you and through you, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Right? He tells this obscure man, Abraham, who, who didn't have much or know much or he wasn't really anybody important, I'm going to make you the center of history. Everyone is going to be blessed through you. And Abraham's like, well, that's great that you gave me that promise, but I have no sons. How, how is this going to happen, God? Prove to me that you're going to keep your promise, is what Abraham tells to God. And God says, okay, I'll prove it to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And God tells Abraham, I want you to set up a covenant ceremony, which means I want you to gather together these sacrificial animals. You're going to cut them in half, and then you're going to lay them out. 
And so what happens is you lay one half of the animal on this side and one half on this side, and then to, to signify the, the covenant ceremony, both parties, God and Abraham, would walk through the animals. And what it signifies is if I break this covenant, may it be to me as it was to these animals, right? You're saying, I'm going to lose my life if I break this covenant. Well, what happens is Abraham falls asleep. Good time to fall asleep, right? Abraham falls asleep, and God shows up in this smoking pot and a, and a fiery torch, right? It's this strange appearance of God. God shows up, and he walks right through the pieces without Abraham. Abraham never walks through it. God walks through it by himself, and he says to Abraham by doing that, by his own actions, he's saying this, I am committed to you whether you're committed to me or not. I am making a one-way covenant with you that if you break it, it's, it's not on you, it's on me. It, it, this is going to be a one-way covenant where I am committed to you no matter what. And it's the basis of their relationship. In fact, in Isaiah 41.8, God calls Abraham my friend. My friend. In James chapter 2, James picks up on this language where James says, Abraham was a friend of God. This, this is God saying to Abraham and saying to us, this is the foundation of relationships is commitment. I'm committed to you no matter what. See, commitment cultivates an environment for friendship. If we're safe, then we can be honest. If we're secure, I can be transparent with you. If, if I have this promise that you're committed to me and I'm committed to you and, and there's this bond between us, now I can actually be known and know you. Do you see that? But it, it starts with commitment. It requires some kind of commitment in the relationship for the relationship to make that further movement into depth, into transparency, into honesty. I mean, think about it. I guarantee you, if you look over your life, all the closest relationships you've had in your life had some form of commitment to them. Maybe you were committed to each other because you played a sport together, or you were in a play together, or you were committed together because you were in a small group at church together, or you served on some team, or whatever it is. In your life, the closest relationships are the relationships that have some kind of commitment to them. It's the basis of that commitment. Author and pastor Brian Loritz, he talks about this communication uh, and, and how we need commitment. And he talks about it as an iceberg. And I, and I love the illustration because it just helps understand why commitment is so essential. But just imagine for a second an iceberg where only a portion is above the water and the majority of the iceberg is below the water, right? Well, he says level one communication, which is above the water, he says is this, it's cliches. Right? You're just saying, hi, bye, how you doing? Good, 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 we're doing good. Yeah, you never actually say anything, but you say words. Right? It's just cliche, and there's nothing wrong with that. You don't know them, they don't know you, you're just kind of saying hi and being friendly. Level two goes a little further, and you're sharing facts. Right? You're, you're sharing the facts of your life. How was your week? What's going on in your job? You know, did your kids get good grades or whatever, right? You're, how's the weather? What, what, what was the score of the football game, right? You're sharing facts about your life or about other things in life, but it doesn't really get beyond that. Level three starts to go below the waterline a little bit. Level three, he says, are opinions. In other words, you're not just sharing the facts, you're sharing what you think about the facts. 
You're opening up a little bit. You're being a little bit vulnerable because you're, you're sharing what you actually think about it, and they may reject that. So who knows? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to share what I think. Level four. Level four is where most people never get in their relationships, he says. Level four is feelings. Now you're not just sharing what you think, but how you feel about it. How you, how you really respond emotionally. What, what's going on and how, how do I put these things together in my life experience? I'm, I'm sharing my feelings. And then he says, level five is a little bit beyond that. Level five is full transparency. Now I'm, I'm sharing my struggles, my pain, my hurt, my doubts. I'm sharing at the bottom level where most people have never seen in my life. Level four, level five. The question is, how do you get there, right? Well, it takes commitment and it takes time. There's another author, Justin Early, who writes about this when he talks about friendship. And if you don't hear anything I say, take this right here. He says this. He says, friendship is vulnerability over time. Friendship is vulnerability over time. In other words, it's these two things coming together where I'm going to be vulnerable, but it's going to take me time, and I'm going to need to be committed to you over a long stretch of time so that there's enough space for me to share what's really going on, and there's enough space for you to share what's really going on so that I can get beyond level one, level two, level three. I can get to the depths, but it's going to take some time, and it's going to take vulnerability. So the question I want to ask you is, who do you go deeper with? Who do you go deeper with? And who goes deeper with you? To get down below the cliches, the facts, the opinions. All right, if we're ever going to go beyond acquaintances into friendship, we have to have these people in our life. Now, let me tell you, it doesn't have to be everyone. It shouldn't be everyone. Don't be the person who you're walking around and you're at level five all the time. You're going to exhaust everybody, right? You, you don't need to be like that with everybody. You shouldn't be like that with everybody, but you should be like that with some people. You should be like that with two, three, four, five, however many people you need, but you need to be like that with some people who get to that level with you. But here's the thing. It's going to start with commitment, and it's that commitment that you can build on, and over time opens you up to vulnerability to where now there's this trust. There's true friendship that can endure because I'm committed to you and you're committed to me. So if that's what true friendship starts with, how, how does the opposite function? In, in other words, false friendship. And that's what I want to look at next, false friendship. Look with me at verse 6 as the story goes on. It says, As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Right? So now imagine they're, they're on their way back. They, they had this conversation. David's holding the head, right? All that. And then they, now they're headed home. And on their way home, they're starting to gather a crowd. As they're heading home, all the people start pouring out of Israel from every city, and they're celebrating. They're rejoicing. They're singing. It says that the women were leading them in these songs, and, and now everybody's dancing and celebrating. This is the song that they sing in verse 7. Not necessarily a big, you know, bestseller, but Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right? I don't know if it made it in the hymn book, but this was the song that they couldn't get out of their mind. 
This is the song that everyone's singing because to them, they're celebrating God. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, David gives the victory, but God was the one who worked for them. God was the one who brought about this, this transforming power. And so they're celebrating God. They're, they're making YouTube videos and dances and TikToks, and people can't get the song out of their mind because they're celebrating. However, Saul can't get it out of his mind for a different reason. Look at what he says in verse 8. It says, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? See, all Saul can think about is they're singing more about David than me. All Saul hears when he hears David's killed his ten thousands is David, 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 David. He can't go anywhere without hearing about David, and so he's tired of it. It's irritating him because just a few moments ago, David was his new favorite man. David killed Goliath. David got rid of his enemies. David's getting success on every side. And so just a few moments ago, David was useful, but now David is a threat. And you see this switch. You see this switch. And, and what you see in Saul is, is the difference in their relationship. Their relationship is not covenantal. It's contractual. In other words, it's based on performance. Yeah. David is somebody I like and I can be friends with as long as he's performing for me and doing the things that I want him to do and making my life better. But the moment David is no longer making my life better but making it worse... He's out. He's out. Look at what it says in verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day on. There's this jealous eye. I got to keep a watch on this guy. He, he's too much. He's too costly. Saul, in other words, listen to this. Saul was willing to use him, but not love him. He was willing to relate to David when he's useful but not when he's not. See, false friendship depends on performance. It depends on performance. It reminds me of the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Maybe you've heard the story. Jesus introduces the story like this. There's a father who has two sons, and the younger son comes to the father, and he asks for his inheritance. And the father surprisingly says yes, because basically what the son is asking is, I, I just want your money, I don't want you. I don't care about you. I want, I want what you have. And the father gives it to him. And so the son takes the money and he, he goes and he squanders it on reckless living, right? He's living his best life until he's not. He runs out of money. He's broke. There's a famine. So now he has no money, no food, and he's sitting at the feet of pigs begging them for food. He's hit the bottom. Now he goes to his father. He returns back. And when he returns to his father... He's, he finds his father waiting eagerly, waiting, anticipating, can't, can't ex imagine that his son would come back and just so overjoyed that his father runs to him, kisses him, hugs him, wraps him with his robe, gives him a ring, puts shoes on his feet, and he says, you know what? I'm, and he turns to his, his other people and he says, we're going to throw a party. We're going to throw a party that's bigger than any party you've ever seen. And when the party gets started, the older brother shows up. And when the older brother shows up to the party, he's not as happy as the father. 
In fact, it says he was furious. He is angry and jealous, and he starts to go off on the father and say, hey, you've never done anything like this for me. You've never loved me like this. You've never killed the fattened calf for me. Where was my party? Because the older brother couldn't just rejoice with his younger brother. Here's why. Their relationship was based on performance. They could get along as as long as the younger brother wasn't taking something from him, costing him something, what wasn't making his life a little bit harder. As long as he's serving me, I'm good with him. But when he stops serving me, when he stops performing, I'm out. I'm done. Listen, this is the key difference. His brother wasn't useful. The key contrast in true friendship is how we see people. Listen, it's useful versus delightful. Useful versus delightful. How do you see the people in your life? How do you see them? Do you see them primarily as people who are useful to get things done that you want to get done? Do you see them primarily as people who can advance your career or can pay a bill or can help you out with the kids or can do whatever that you have needed in your life? Or do you see them as delightful for who they are? It's a hard question. Listen, there's a hard truth here. There's a hard truth here I want, I want us to sit on for a moment. And, and I'll, I'll phrase it this way. Usually... Most of the time, almost always, okay, I'm giving you a little little cushion. We won't have friends until we first become friends. There there might be exceptions out there. There there might be people who are just the, the unusual case, but usually we won't have friends until we first become friends. Why do I say that? Because here's why. Friendship, if it's based on what the person can give to me, won't last very long. Friendship has to be based on what I can give to the person and then what they can give to me. There there needs to be an other-centeredness in a friendship or it won't last. Because quickly it'll turn into a relationship where now you are using them to advance whatever is going on in your life that you need help with. Right? The relationship is no longer based on the person, it's based on their usefulness. Rather than use people, we're called to love them. Rather than wait for someone to solve our loneliness, to solve our insecurities, to solve our sadness, we, we have to befriend, right? How, how do we do that? What, what does that look like to actually befriend someone? Here, here's three things I want to give you real quick before we go. I'm running out of time. First is pursue pursue. In other words, what I mean by that is you, you have to pursue other people before you're waiting for them to pursue you. I know that's hard, and all the introverts just got real tense. That's okay. I'm not saying that you, know, you need to have a hundred friends that you're always pursuing. That sounds exhausting to me. It's okay. What I am saying, though, is you're not off the hook. That every person, you you have to pursue somebody. So if it's two people or three people, whatever, but call them, text them, reach out to them, invite them to do something. I don't know what it is, but pursue somebody. Don't wait for them to pursue you. Be the friend that you want them to be. Be that friend. Be that friend who's calling someone, texting, checking on them, right? Second thing is this, listen. Listen. 
So before you fill the air with all your words and what's going on in your life and how, how things are going, listen. Really listen. Ask them how they're doing. Check in, see what's going on. Listen for what's really happening so that you can then enter into their life in this third way to serve. Because I promise you, as you listen to someone, all of us are in need. All of us at every point of our life have things going on where, where we need someone to just cry with, we need someone to pray with, we need someone to help with something, whatever it is. We, we need someone to be there. And if you'll just listen to someone, there'll be an opportunity for you to step into their life and to be a part of their life as a real friend. There's so few good listeners. But to get down to level four, level five, we have to pursue, we have to listen, we have to serve. And listen, I, I, I know that what I'm just describing sounds terrifying and overwhelming to some of us because if, if the stats are right, most of us are struggling with loneliness. Most of us are struggling on some level and many of us feel overwhelmed, like how do I, how do, I do something about that? So I don't want you to hear that now it's all on you and you're terrible if you don't have friends. What I want you to hear is it's possible it's possible. And God invites us to start somewhere, to start with just the simple work of reaching out. Start with your connect group. If you don't have a connect group, get into a connect group. But reach out, text somebody, call somebody, ask them how they're doing. Say, let's sit together on Sunday so we can see each other more often. Whatever it is, try to find just small ways you can say, I want to pursue this relationship. I want to seek out what it would look like to be friends with these people. I'm telling you, this kind of friendship is what we long for, but it's what we're called to be before we receive. It's what we're called to be. Not using people, but loving them, delighting in them, right? I got to keep moving. So what, what's our hope to move on from false uh, friendship to true friendship? It's sacrificial friendship. Look, look at back at verse four. Look back at verse four. It says this, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, right after Jonathan says to David, uh, you know what, I'm going to make a covenant with you, he, ne he then shows David something even more surprising, even more surprising. He says, I want to give you my royal clothing. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going to take off my robe. Here you go. Here's my robe. Now I'm going to take off my armor that I fight in. Here you go. I'm going to take my sword, my, my belt even. I don't know why he takes his belt off, but he, he takes his belt off. He, he gives David everything. What, what is going on here? Jonathan is saying this. He's saying, I am giving you the rights to my kingdom because I'm, I'm the prince, but I believe what God has said about you, and I want to see your success. I want to see you built up. I want to see you as the one who's celebrated. I want to see you in that position that God's called you to be. So Jonathan is saying, because I'm your friend, I'm going to give you everything. Jonathan is saying, I'm willing to give up my throne for my friend, for my friend. This is later echoed in the New Testament with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he comes into contact with Jesus, he says about Jesus, I must decrease so that he must increase right? John the Baptist is saying about Jesus, if I'm going to befriend him well, I need to see his greatness and I need to lower myself so that I can befriend him as best I can. 
It's this sacrificial love, this, this friendship that we're seeing here in Jonathan's relationship. And Jonathan points us to a true and greater friend in Jesus. Jesus who would give up his throne in heaven for his friends on earth. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he tells them, I have called you friends. I've called you friends. Jesus befriends us with his sacrificial love. That's how he befriends us. There was a man named Ernest Gordon who was a chaplain at a, at a Princeton Seminary in the 1950s. And before that, he was a, uh, spent some time as a prisoner of war during World War II in Japan. And uh, while he was there, he, he tells the story of what he experienced in the prison camp. And uh, he said one of the days they were working long hours out in the field, and, and uh, after their long day of work, they gathered up all their tools, and uh, one of the shovels was missing. One of the shovels that all these prisoners were using was missing, and so the guard, he started yelling at them, he lined them all up, and he started cussing at them, spitting at them, yelling at, you know, if, if no one turns in the shovel, whoever did it, they're going to die, and everyone's going to die. He's just angry, so angry. And so as he's walking up and down the line, cussing these prisoners out, yelling at them at the top of his lungs, one of the guys steps forward, one of the other prisoners, and he says, I did it. I did it. And so the guard starts to unleash his fury of wrath on him and beats him endlessly until he passes out and later he would, he would die. That moment, the other prisoners are shocked. They, they can't believe what they just experienced. They grab their friend's body. They bring him back to the, to the house where they were staying. And later that next day, they count all the shovels, and there was no shovel missing. He was innocent. And yet he offered himself for his friends. He said, I, I would rather take the punishment than all of you punished, because that's what friends do. See, Jesus didn't wait for us to befriend him because he knows that we never would. We, we were against Jesus. Jesus came to us at the worst of times when we were sinners and enemies of God. And Jesus says, I'm going to befriend you when you don't deserve it. When you're not pursuing me, I'm going to pursue you. So instead of, instead of that, he befriended us by giving himself for us. He gave up his robe of heavenly glory and to be wrapped in, in a dirty manger. He would hand over his heavenly host of angels to be arrested by Roman soldiers and put on trial. He would shed his own blood on the cross, making a new covenant in his own blood. And as he hung on that tree, God was reminding us that he walked through the pieces, not us. God was saying, I'm going to keep my promise. I will be trustworthy even if you're not. I'm committed to our friendship even if it costs the life of my own son. He was committed to cleansing our sin and securing our future. See, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is, is what secures our friendship with God. Right? It's not based on our performance. It's based on what God has done in Christ and his perfect performance. It's not based on us uh, being useful to God or, or doing something great for God. It's based on what God has done for us and his delight in us in Christ. See, the safest friendship you can have is a friendship with God in Christ because it's not based on you. It's God saying, I'm committed to you no matter what. I've made a covenant with you in my son's blood. 
And that covenant means I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you and I am for you. I am for your success, for your flourishing, for your thriving. You're safe. You're secure. You're safe because of his sacrificial love. See, do you need that kind of enduring friendship? It's only found in Jesus. And here, here's the amazing thing about that kind of friendship with God. That security that we have in God is what makes all other friendships possible. Because when you're secure with God, you can take the risk to be vulnerable with others. When you're secure with God in Christ, you, you can be vulnerable with someone who, who might and, and probably will harm you. They, they probably will hurt you. They're going to say things that they shouldn't say, and they're going to do things that they shouldn't do. But listen, if you're secure in Christ, you can have those kinds of friendships. You can pursue people when they're not good at pursuing you. You can love people when they don't love you back the way they should. You can do it because you're secure in Him. But that security only comes by faith in Christ. He says, I'm offering it to you. I've befriended you. I've given myself to you. Now come. Come to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we receive and rest upon you alone. Your love for us. Your constant befriending grace. Lord, as you said, there's no greater love that you would lay down your life for your friends and you have called us friends. What a gift. What a gift when we've been your enemies from our sin, from our rebelliousness. And yet you say, those are the ones I want. Those are the ones I've come for. I've come for them, to befriend them, to love them. So God, I pray for us today in our hearts that as we go this morning, Help us to really rest in that, to be secure in you. And out of that security, out of that safety that's in Christ, may we love those around us. May we see them, pursue them, listen, love, serve, because you've done that for us. And we are fully and forever secure in you. Thank you in the name of our Father, our Son, and our Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.